Welcome. My name is Kevin Featherstone, and I'm a professor here at the LSE in the European Institute. I'm also director of the Hellenic Observatory. Today's discussion is entitled Inequality, the Misallocation of Talents and Economic Development. This is part of a series of lectures that we hold in collaboration with the National Bank of Greece. And I wish to thank the bank for its continuing support. In particular, its chairman, Kostos Mekalides, and its CEO, Pavlos Mulunas. The lecture series focuses on issues of international concern, and we cover many different disciplinary perspectives. We aim to develop fresh ideas, new arguments, and have a stimulating exchange. Today's topic, of course, has long attracted much attention. But in the context of the economic shocks of the COVID uh, pandemic, we wonder what the world will be like uh, tomorrow. Will we wake up to a more unequal and inefficient world? If that's the prospect, what can we do about it? And what does it mean for us? Our main speaker today is my colleague from the LSC, Oriana Bandera. Oriana is the Sir Anthony Atkinson Professor of Economics at the LSE and a Fellow of the British Academy and of the Economic Econometric Society, amongst others. She is co-editor of Econometrica, the Vice President of the European Economic Association and Director of the Gender Growth and Labour Markets in Low-Income Countries uh, Programme. She serves on the Council of the Econometric Society on the board of the International Growth Center and as vice president of the Collegio Carlo Alberto. Once again, we're delighted to welcome senior academics from Greece to respond to the lecture. Aristides Hatsis is professor of philosophy of law and the theory of institutions at the University of Athens. He is director of research at the Center for Liberal Studies in Athens and a fellow of the Institute for Research in Economics and Fiscal Issues in Paris. He's also a member of the advisory board of the Society of European Contract Law, the steering committee of the European Network for Better Regulation, and the editorial board of the European Review of Contract Law. Daphne Nikolitsas is assistant professor at the Department of Economics at the University of Crete. Before that, she worked in economic policy-related jobs and in the financial sector. Her main research interests lie in labor economics and in industrial organization, fields in which she has a number of publications in international journals. Currently, she's uh, coordinating an EU-funded project with partners from top EU universities on the structure and conduct of employers' associations in the European Union. Uh, you're all very welcome, and I'm grateful for you joining us. This series of lectures, of course, would normally be held in Athens, and I know many of you will be watching uh, from Greece, in particular from the LSE's Alumni Association there. The association and its president, Vasilis Apostolopoulos, are good supporters, uh, supporters of the school and indeed of our Hellenic Observatory. Uh, you're all very welcome, indeed, to our wider audience as well, um, which uh, I believe will be international from many different uh, countries. 
As we proceed in this discussion, we invite you to send us your comments using the Twitter facility, and we suggest the hashtag, hashtag LSE Athens Lectures. Uh, let me also say that the uh, discussion uh, will be recorded, and we will hopefully make this available as a podcast uh, later, uh, unless there are any technical difficulties. In a moment, I'm going to invite Oriana to uh, address us, and then we'll hear the responses of our two discussants. And then I will open up the discussion to you, the audience, uh, so that you can send us your questions, send us your questions at any stage. You can use the Q&A facility, the icon at the bottom of your screen, or if you're watching on Facebook, uh, send us those questions using the comment uh, facility. And we'll try to uh, include as many questions as possible. Um, if you do send us your questions, please send us your affiliation and tell us where you're watching from. It's always uh, good to uh, know uh, the, the spread of our audience. Uh, so let us begin. And uh, let me give a warm welcome to my colleague, Oriana Bandera. Thank you so much, Kevin, for this introduction. And thank you for inviting me to give this lecture. I confess that since the pandemic started, I've enjoyed staying at home and not traveling as much as I used to. But if there is one that I really regret not doing, is this one. So I would much rather be in Athens, as I said earlier. Um, not being able to do that, let me share my slides instead. So the starting point for this lecture is that, as we know, living standards vary enormously across and within countries. This is mostly due to differences in labor productivity because, you know, technology is the same everywhere. People are the same everywhere, but somehow labor is more productive in some countries than others. So I will discuss how this depends on the organization of labor, and in particular, how people with different talent are allocated to different jobs, and how this depends on underlying inequalities. Let me start with an anecdote, if this works. Let's see. Okay, so this is Italy, that's where I'm from. I'm actually from a place that's very close to Greece, both physically and most importantly, culturally. I'm from Syracuse, which is down here, just in front of Greece. Greece is on the other side. And um, as you know, probably Sicily, uh, Syracuse was one of the biggest Greek towns outside of Greece. Now, all of that would be irrelevant if it weren't for the fact that when I was 17, I moved to Milan to go to college. And at that time, the ratio of GDP between Milan and Sicily was about three. So Lombardy was three times as rich as Sicily. Now, a ratio of three is noticeable. You see it in the streets, you see it everywhere. Okay? People have better clothes, the streets are cleaner, everything is shiny and new. But then there was something odd about Milan. With no offense to people from Milan or from Northern Italy who are listening now, the average person that you met in Milan, the average baker, the average fishmonger, the average taxi driver, was a lot, but a lot less intelligent than the correspondent in Sicily. 
In fact, my father always said that the most intelligent man that he knew was our green gross, admittedly a very intelligent person. And so I was very puzzled by this fact. I was wondering how come that people in Sicily are so much smarter and yet Sicily is so much poorer. It took me a while, it took me a PhD in economics to understand that actually that is precisely the reason for why Sicily is poorer. Because in Milan, all the smart people wouldn't be selling sandwiches. They would be doctors, they would be lawyers, they would be engineers. And the average person that drives a cab is not the most intelligent that you will meet. So is that just an anecdote or is it a fact? Well, if you look carefully, actually it doesn't have to be so careful, but some patterns immediately jump at you. This graph uh, depicts the ratio of numerical skills, so how good you are in maths, between the median blue-collar worker and the bottom manager. Okay? This is done at the country level. This is representative data on math skills. Okay? So a ratio larger than one means that half of blue-collar workers are more intelligent math-wise than the bottom 10% of managers. So 1.2 means that the median blue-collar worker is 20% better than the bottom 10% head manager. 1.2 is the highest number here. You find it in Kazakhstan, in Russia, and almost there in Ecuador. You see that this ratio decreases with economic development. That is, the richest countries in this sample, like Norway, have a lower ratio. Almost no country has a ratio below one, but there is a very clear negative relationship. Greece is up here. This holds for all types of skills. It's not just maths. We have data on literacy. We have data on problem solving. You get the same steep negative relationship. Why does that matter? Well, managers and professionals have a much larger impact on the economic activity. So there, is, there are gains to be had from swapping blue-collar workers for managers until all the managers are more talented than all the workers. Okay? It's also important because it casts doubts on meritocracy as a system of incentives. We live in a society where we're told that we'll stand inequality because inequality is what provides us the drive to do better. Right? If there were no inequality, there would be no reason to work harder. But that's when inequality is paired with mobility. The facts that I just showed you are against the idea that there is mobility. Here is another fact. What this graph shows is the difference in math skills between men and women at work vis-a-vis -vis men and women outside the labor force. And again, there is a strong negative relationship with development. In this case, is labor force participation 
the ratio between women and men. So what this shows is that in countries where few women work, those women who do, so Italy and Greece do quite poorly here, the women who do are much more talented than men who do. Okay? Why does this matter? Well, I don't even have to write it. It's the same logic as before. There are gains to be had substituting a man for a woman until their ability are the same. So what I'm going to do today is provide you some uh, more systematic evidence on these issues. I will talk both about wealth inequality and gender inequality. And I will base this evidence on uh, different pieces of work that I've done in co-authorships with uh, my colleagues. So the first thing to notice is that all of these models have a feedback mechanism built into them. And they, the, the reason this is important is that it's really hard to get out of it because the feedback loop reinforces itself. So if you start at the top here, inequality will lead to different access to opportunities. This will mean that an intelligent person will be a fishmonger and a less clever person will be a doctor just because his father was a doctor. This will affect both productivity, so poverty at the country level and individual poverty, and will feedback in inequality. So the fact that there is this feedback loop makes it really hard to get out. But at the same time, the fact that there is this feedback loop means that if you break any of these chains, then you can solve the problem for good. So here is the other piece of the puzzle, that is the relationship between inequality and opportunity. This is a correlation between the income inequality on the horizontal axis and a measure of mobility, which is the intergenerational income elasticity, basically tells you how similar your earnings are to your father. Okay? So the bigger the number, the less opportunities you have, because basically your job and income is determined at birth by the job and income of your parents. And again, you see that more unequal societies have less mobility. That is, they have more, a higher level of uh, intergenerational income elasticity. So how does this relate? I mean, does this, is this relationship causal? And what can we do about it? Well, the first thing to notice is that most of the poor people in the world have a job. So it's not the case that people are poor because they're out of work by and large. But the problem is that their jobs are bad almost by definition, right? You're poor because you don't earn enough, you don't earn enough because you're in a bad job. And by bad, I mean that they pay little, they are uncertain, and they are irregular. This is very true in most low-income countries, and it's starting to be true again in our societies, thanks to the zero-hour contracts and the various self-employment contracts a la Uber. Okay, so there are two ways in which we can explain this correlation between jobs and poverty. One view states that everybody has the same access to opportunities. 
but people just have different traits. So people have different traits and make them better at good jobs. So in this view, the poor do bad jobs because they have no talent to do anything else. The alternative view, okay, so I have this, I explained this to my daughter when she was six and she, she drew this for me. Uh, this is basically the illustration that uh, the world is like a hill that anybody can climb. It doesn't matter where you start. If you have the same hill, so the same talent, you will reach the same point. So in this world, the only way to explain differences in outcomes is by having different hills. So you're worse off just because you're less productive, your hill is lower. Because given equal opportunities, it doesn't matter where you start, you should all end up in the same place. How do we think economically about a world like this? But this is a world in which people are born in different families with different wealth. And in order to get a hill, what you need is that returns are very high when the assets are low, so that each small investment allows you to climb the hill. Just to make an example, this is a world in which if you can't afford a master's at the LSE, you could do a one-year course. That will allow you to work. And with the savings, you'll be able to pay for your full degree. And then you get another job that pays more. And with the savings, you get a master's at the LSE. And eventually, it doesn't matter where you started from, you will converge to the level that your talent uh, dictates. So that's one view. The other diametrically opposite view is that people are all the same, but they have different access to opportunities. In this view, some of the poor have the talent to do the jobs of the rich, but they face barriers that stops them from doing so. Now, if you put that in my daughter's graph, which is actually very similar to the economics of it, this is a world in which there is a steep bit so that the person who starts at the bottom is basically stuck in a trap. They may have exactly the same talent as the person who starts at the top, but the point at which you start matters. Economically, what does that mean? It means that you need a big investment to get high returns. It means that you cannot study at an evening college for six months. That has almost no returns. You need the money to afford a college degree. If you do afford the college degree, then everything is gonna be smooth. You're gonna go past the steep bit. But if you can't afford that chunk investment, you will not be able to pass the steep bit. That means that two people with exactly the same skills, talent and motivation, will end up rich or poor depending on whether they were born that way. So this generates a poverty trap, which is where the blue person is stuck there. And poverty traps are both unequal and inefficient. And it's very important to assess whether they exist in practice because the policies that uh, you need to address poverty depend essentially on whether there are poverty traps or not. So the 
the evidence that I'm going to show you now is based on a recent paper with a large number of colleagues, which is called Why Do People Stay Poor? In that paper, we look at a program implemented by an NGO in Bangladesh that takes the poorest villages in the poorest regions of Bangladesh and targets women. And in these villages, the labor markets are very simple. There are essentially three jobs. You can either take care of cows or you can be a casual worker in the fields, in agriculture, or you can work as a domestic servant in the house of the wealthier. So there are just three jobs. And not surprisingly, the poorest women are either maid or agricultural workers, and the rich women can tend the cows. The program that we evaluate gives poor women a cow. This is a gigantic transfer for them. It's worth one year of income. Okay? And there's no way that they could afford it on their own, either by saving or by borrowing. So what we do is we compare among these women who were given a cow, those who were given the cow, the cow has the same value, but some women started slightly more rich than the others. So if you remember the graph of the hill and the mountain, some women start a bit to the right of the others. We can see what happens to their wealth after the transfer, to test whether the world looks like a hill or like a mountain. So that's how the hill and the mountain look uh, drawn by us rather than by my daughter. They don't look very different. The, the idea is the same. And we can, in the data, estimate this relationship between assets at baseline and assets after the program. And when we do that, this is what we get. Okay? We get a relationship between the assets of baseline and the assets four years later, which is consistent with the poverty trap. There is a steep mountain. There is a bit there between 0.23 and 0.238, where basically if you're not pushed past that point, you will fall back into poverty. And indeed, that's what we observe in the data. The people to the right of that point escape. We follow them for 11 years, and you see that they keep accumulating assets, saving and keep accumulating, they start buying land, and their life is completely transformed. The people to the right, fall, sorry, to the left, fall back. Within four years, they're back to where they started. So poverty traps are both unfair and inefficient. Unfair because obviously two people with the same talent will end up with different standards of living because of accidents at birth. The poor person faces a higher barrier. They're inefficient because highly talented people who are born poor will not be able to exploit that talent. And importantly, they will be replaced by a less talented, richer person. The lessons that we take for policies that one of transfers, which are large enough to push people past the threshold, will reduce poverty in the long run. And the important thing is that these are expensive. They're extremely expensive because 
a cow is worth a year of income, but they are a one-off. Most programs that are meant to reduce poverty, starting from microfinance or cash transfers or uh, workfare programs, are well below that amount. The typical microloan is one-tenth of that amount. So there's not much that can happen with that. Unfortunately, the same works in reverse. That is, shocks that send people below the threshold will also have a permanent impact. And this is what will help us understand the effect of large shocks like COVID. Always in Bangladesh, we survey 7,000 households who live in urban slums and rural areas, and we collect information on their jobs before COVID and after the lockdown. A baseline, there is a strong correlation between wealth and the type of job that people have. Okay, the richer people have salary jobs, and the middle-income people have small businesses, and the poorest people have casual jobs. What happens is that after the lockdown, there is a lot of churning. Right? This graph, if you start from the bottom, it tells you from the people who own the business before the COVID pandemic in February, how many of them still own a business in June after the lockdown lifted? And the proportion is 60%. 9% of people move from business to salaried labor and 30% move from business to casual labor. And there is churning the other way too. You have people that go from salary to casual and people that go from casual to salary. Now, the issue is that who are these people that shift? Well, you see that it is the wealthiest that move to better jobs. Okay? If you look at businesses, the guys who manage to keep their business afloat, this is their wealth, a baseline before the COVID hit. You see that it's much higher than the wealth of those who move to casual jobs. It's about twice as much. And likewise, those who lose the salary job to move to casual job, their wealth is lower. And the opposite also happens. That is, those who leave casual labor to move to salary jobs have higher wealth. Now, this means that we have what we call a negatively sloped frontier. These lines, let's focus on just one. Uh, the one in the top right and uh, left hand side corner here shows the relationship between the wealth of the business owner and the earnings of so the profits of this business that close down. Okay, so this is about levers in urban areas. So, what this graph is telling you is that if the owner is poor, a business that made high profits is likely to close down, more likely to close down than a business that makes way less profits and has a richer owner. Okay? So this line is basically captures all the combinations of profits pre-COVID and wealth of the owner below which the business closes. So the businesses 
the good businesses by poor owners close and are replaced by less profitable businesses with wealthier owners. You see that from the entrance graphs, which again plot the wealth of the owner against the earnings of the new entrants. So the effect of COVID depends on the type that the person has. So that means that people change jobs. Wealthier people get better jobs, which lead to inequality and misallocation. This means, unfortunately, that unless something is done, the effect of the pandemic will last a lot longer than the pandemic itself. We will end up with businesses which are less profitable, but owned by wealthier people who have managed to keep them afloat. Let me, in the little time that I have left, which I believe is 10 minutes, let me talk about gender a bit. You can think about gender the same way you think about poverty. You see a group of people doing systematically worse. Why is that? Well, in this case, it's actually half of the population doing systematically worse. There could be two views. In one view is that women are just better at housekeeping and childcare. They could still be better in the workplace, but they are comparatively better at childcare. In the other view is that women and men are the same. And there are just two equilibria, one in which house care duties are equally shared and one in which one gender takes them all. And there could be norms that lead to coordination where the only equilibrium that prevails is the one where women stay at home. It's very difficult to tell between these two stories because they have exactly the same prediction. It's like the, the women in Bangladesh, it was impossible to say whether they were not tending cows because they didn't have the money to buy the cow or because they weren't good at it. So by just looking at women labor force participation, it's hard to say whether women don't participate in the labor force because they're better off staying at home or because they're stuck there for some reason. So like in Bangladesh, where we use the shock created by the program that gave the women a cow, here we use the response to the COVID shock to help us tell between these two stories. Now, the way we do this is by using time use data. These data come from the UK and it's a survey which is done during lockdown. And it basically asks to all couples where they were both working before the lockdown, how they use their time during lockdown. And all the graphs that I'm gonna show you are the ratio of the hours that the mother devotes to that activity over the hours devoted by the father. So now in the pre-COVID world, we split the couples between those where the father was earning more and those where the mother had the highest earnings. Okay? So these are people who are self-selected into working, both of them. So you see that when the father earns more and COVID hits and there is no maid and there is no childcare, the woman does most of the childcare. Okay? 
she does most of the housework. So she does one and a half times as much childcare, twice as much housework, but she does half of the paid work, which kind of makes sense by comparative advantage. If you lose access to services and the man is the one who earns the most, it makes sense that this happens. Now, what should happen if it's the woman who earns more? Should be the other way around, right? So this is a graph that takes what happens when the fathers earn more and flips it to predict what should happen when the mother earns more. Right? We would expect the mother to spend more time at work and the father to take care of the housework and the children. That's what should happen. This is what happens, okay? So the blue line is what happens. The orange line is what the comparative advantage predicts. In practice, this is not very different from when the father earns more. The mother does most of the childcare, way more than predicted by comparative advantage, most of the housework, a lot less paid work, and importantly, a lot less uninterrupted paid work. Because while she's working, she's probably taking care of the children. So my conclusion uh, is that inequalities are not just bad because we like a fair world for the sake of it. They are bad in a functional sense because they generate a misallocation of talent. Going back to the greengrocer in Sicily, the greengrocer, the intelligent greengrocer was selling vegetables where he could have been a doctor. And the doctor was instead the son of a doctor who got the job because his father was a doctor. And coming back to my own father, he once broke a leg and he found himself in the hospital and he realized that the doctor was the son of the, of the doctor and he was his classmate and he was the worst kid in the class. My father ended up with a cast in the wrong leg. So had the greengrocer been able to become a doctor, probably that wouldn't have happened. That's to say that misallocation lowers productivity because my father ended up with the wrong leg, cast in the wrong leg and that made him waste a lot of time, not to mention the pain and fosters more inequality because the son of the bad doctor will also become a doctor. This affects how we think of shocks like COVID and policies, because the fundamental implication of this fact is that any short-run change of sufficient size will last a lot longer than the conditions that promoted that change in the first place. And I think I'm on time, so I will stop here. Thank you, Ariana, very much indeed. Uh, if you'd like to stop sharing the screen, and thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that uh, very thought-provoking presentation. Let me uh, pass now to Aristides Hatsis. Uh, first of all, uh, I, I would like to thank the, the LSE, the Hellenic Observatory, and Kevin uh, for the invitation. Uh, to discuss such a, a fascinating presentation by Professor Bacchera. Uh, I will start my uh, comment by introducing myself, I mean, by uh, placing myself 
uh, in the on the ideological spectrum. So you can uh, take with a smaller or a bigger pinch of salt everything that you're going to hear from me tonight. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm a classical liberal. I'm a graduate of the Chicago School, and I consider myself a member of the Chicago School. And I'm also a, a bleeding heart libertarian. That is, I'm, I'm, I'm a classical liberal who is sensitive to the issues of social justice or social solidarity, as I prefer to uh, to, to to call this um, uh, kind of issues of of problems. Um, having said that, uh, I would also like to emphasize um, that um, I see I see economic in, uh, economic inequality as the, the biggest challenge for contemporary liberal democracies. And the reason for that, uh, of course, I do not have to explain to this audience uh, because Oriana have already done an excellent job, but I'm, I'm going to emphasize the importance of hearing sides by, uh, by placing them in a broader uh, framework, both political and, I, I, I would say, not exactly philosophical, but more theoretical. Economic inequality is harmful for two reasons. One of them is uh, a purely political reason. The other is also political, but uh, I could also characterize it as economic or rather an issue of efficiency as uh, Oriana um, um, uh, called it. Uh, as, a, as a liberal, I'm really disturbed with economic inequality because it is unfair since it is the outcome of natural lottery. My opportunity in life depends on my physical and social characteristics that are not the product of my choice, my choices, but the arbitrary results of something as arbitrary as uh, fate. So, uh, at least since um, since the the mid nineteenth uh, century, humanity and a lot of liberals had started like. John Stuart Mill, had started to see the outcome of natural lottery as unfair. And now this is a mainstream view, at least since the early 1970s. Uh, I, I use it as a benchmark year, 1971, because of the publication of John Rawls' um, Theory of Justice. This unfairness is revolting uh, by itself, but it is also... Um, connected with political instability. Uh, you see, the problem with liberal democracy is that liberal democracy is based on the consent of the people. It is not based on tanks. It is not based on uh, the, the power of the police. It is not based on authoritarian governments. In an authoritarian, authoritarian uh, regime, this consent... Um, is based on violence, but in a liberal democracy, it is based on consensus. It is based on a form of social compact. I deliberately uh, chose uh, the word compact instead of contract. And this compact includes today the government obligation not to eliminate, of course, but to minimize economic inequality. Every kind of, of, of uh, inequality, but... Uh, Tonight we're uh, talking about, we're discussing economic inequality. Of course, inequality is not going to be eradicated. And if you ask me, this is the liberal touch. 
some inequality is desirable as long as it is connected with uh, productivity, with meritocracy and talent, as Oriana again illustrated. I know that there are uh, very interesting and strong arguments that all these three, uh, productivity, meritocracy, talent, I'm using Oriana's uh, terms, are also the outcome of, of the natural lottery. And yes, if we're going to adopt a rather um, extreme egalitarian deterministic view of the world, this is always true, but when something is always true, this observation is always also trivial. As, as economists, we can, uh, we can understand, that, uh, and let, let me say that I consider myself an economist in law, let's say, since my area of research is economics of law. So we economists, we can understand very well the power of, of uh, incentives, the importance of trade-offs, so the eradication of every kind of inequality of opportunity, a radical egalitarian uh, agenda, uh, who destroy the very people who are trying to protect and it will annihilate the economy. And we have many historical examples to prove that. The second issue, the issue of economic efficiency, uh, and I, I, now I, I feel that I'm just repeating Oriana, but this is inevitable because I really agree with the core of the argument and I also agree with her approach. The, so the second issue has to do with welfare and prosperity. An unequal society is less prosperous. And I think that this is also obvious. And there are studies by even by IMF that illustrate both uh, the problem of political instability and the problem of, um, of inefficiency. And uh, uh, when I mean, uh, when I characterize a society as less prosperous, I do not mean that one, let's say that one third of the society is less prosperous than the other two thirds, but that, that society in general is less prosperous because of economic inequality. If there is for me, a holy grail in economics is the concept of the efficient allocation of resources. Actually, it is something that I'm always asking my students to write on a big piece of paper and pin it on their wall. Econ uh, economics uh, equals efficient allocation of resources. Or the, um, um, the let's say, the, uh, the idea behind uh, the economic science and, uh, and the idea behind efficiency. When they internalize this concept, they can understand everything else a lot easier, including uh, demand and supply. So uh, Oriana did an excellent job today to uh, present inequality as an inefficient allocation of resources, a misallocation, because this is exactly what it is. And this inefficiency brings more instability because people tend to consider inefficiency, we know this from moral, uh, moral psychology, People tend to consider inefficiency as a form of immorality. And sometimes they identify inefficiency with morality. Actually, one of the greatest uh, political philosophers of our time, David Cotier, uh, has a, a famous and rather counterintuitive uh, saying, uh, morality uh, comes, arises, something like that, from, um, from market failure. So, inequality undermines liberal democracy as, as a kind of double jeopardy, if I can use the word, because I'm also a lawyer. It undermines the trust to the fairness of the institutions, but also it undermines the trust to the, to the effectiveness of these institutions uh, to bring uh, social uh, prosperity. And as you know, liberal democracy is not so much in danger today because there are 
competing totalitarian ideologies like Nazis, fascism, or communism. Its nemesis is today, it, it always has been, populism. And populism is a pseudo-egalitarian, pseudo-democratic alternative to the liberal democracy, to the rule of law. So I have a, a number of questions. I, I have many questions for Oriana, so I can... Uh, one of my questions, actually, that it was answered during the, the presentation, had to do with this very interesting and rather puzzling for me um, uh, slide number th- uh, 30 uh, about the earnings uh, wealth from deer. Uh, that profitable business with poor owners are replaced by less profitable business with wealthier uh, owners. Now I can understand um, your argument perfectly. Uh, I was wondering if you have any evidence from Europe uh, about this, um, uh, let's say, replacement, uh, kind of replacement. Uh, my second question. Greece is a country with high levels of inequality and at the same time with an inefficient social welfare state. So, and I'm going now to, to, to the policy, to the prescriptions. Sometimes the inefficiency of welfare state, uh, and Greece is a, a great example of this, did not only lead to ineffective transfers, but to a redistribution in favor of politically strong distributive coalitions. A redistribution in favor of the Uh, of, of, of the richer uh, classes in society. And I think that uh, our colleague uh, Panos Tsaklogl has illustrated that in a series of uh, papers about, um, uh, about investment in education in Greece. How we can solve this problem institution? My third question has to do, uh, again, with education. There is a cyclical relationship between inequality of education and inequality of, um, of wealth. It is a vicious circle, of course. The one stands the other. Uh, your solution seems to be to be based on starting with wealth, with wealth, uh, wealth inequality uh, at the start line. With one time, if I understood correctly, because I had poor connection and I, I missed some some minute, one or two minutes of your presentation. Uh, at the start line, with one time wealth transfer. Is that correct? Did I understand correctly? Uh, I'm asking this because these two kinds of inequality are different in many respects. Education and income uh, inequality or wealth inequality are different in many respects. And the same goes with gender inequality. If we combine the, combine the three, we have rather interesting phenomena and many uh, paradoxes. Uh, for example, uh, we have a phenomenon in Greece you might want to discuss. Uh, young women are over-investing on education in comparison with men, especially young women come from, of course, higher income families. This is, as you know, a global trend. If we see the graduates of U.S. institutions, for example. This might exert an influence on gender inequality, but not on wealth inequality, on gender inequality by breaking some barriers to entry, even some glass uh, ceilings, by the mere force of numbers. And we have some... Uh, very good examples in Greece, like uh, the Jugisa. Um, and I also have a final note. <laughs> I couldn't leave this alone. About intelligence in Sicily and Milan, I have never been to Sicily, so I cannot comment on, on uh, the IQ level of uh, people in Sicily, but I have been in Milan. I think that this is a very good example of the importance um, of the institutional framework. And I mean both formal institutions, For example, what is the level of enforcement 
of the law, of the Italian law, uh, in Milan and Syracuse, and, but also in informal institutions. For example, are social norms the same in Syracuse and in, not Syracuse specifically, Syracuse in Sicily, and Milan? Uh, because I suppose that Syracuse is a very different uh, case from rural Sicily. Uh, I have an outside view of the north-south divide in Italy, even though I have an Italian uh, root in my family, but from uh, Tuscany. But I understand, and you might correct me, uh, that there are huge disparities in social norms. For example, um, so please, please, uh, I'm going to use an example at the end. Please discuss this institutional, uh, uh, the institutional and the cultural implications of your findings, especially for the gender gap, because I, I was wondering while I was hearing you how your misallocation of housework uh, figures would look to compare uh, pre or uh, after COVID Milan and Syracuse households. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Arisevi. Uh, Daphne Nikolitsas. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to thank, um, I would also like to thank the Hellenic Observatory and Kevin uh, Featherstone in particular for inviting me to take part in this event. I'd also like to thank uh, Professor Bandiera for a very stimulating talk. Now, um, I would like to organize my short intervention or discussion in four parts. Uh, first, uh, COVID-related points. Uh, secondly, points related to a possible distinction between innate ability, early childhood education and matching. Third, uh, to tell you how I think Professor Bandiera's talk and arguments resonate with me as a person familiar with the Greek context. And fourthly, to um, focus on policies to alleviate the misallocation of talent. And I also have a couple of questions to ask, but they are more clarifying points rather than deep questions as Professor Hadzis has. So let me start from the end. Um, so leaving to the end the question of whether there is misallocation of talent in Greece and what evidence there is to support any view. I would like to argue that at least in certain fields, institutional and custom arrangements in Greece are such that we could think that they favor misallocation of talent. Politics, entrepreneurship, and misallocation of university students across subjects of study are three fields that spring to my mind. In the first two, politics and entrepreneurship, the, cost, the custom of following the family tradition cannot guarantee that the first best option has been achieved, either for the individuals in, questions, in question or for those affected by them. We know that organizational capital in Greek firms is low and family governance or family firms are in part the reason behind this. As for the misallocation of university students across subjects, the way entrance exams to universities are organized easily leads to mismatch between desires and outcomes. More importantly, there is evidence that this mismatch affects students' performance. From the previous point, I would like thus to suggest the importance of institutions, as has already been mentioned, in allocating talent. Is there evidence of a misallocation of talent in Greece? 
I'd like to start on a more positive note. I think there is evidence to suggest that mobility across educational levels is large. In theory, at least, therefore, individuals have the potential to move to higher positions than their parents. There are two pieces of evidence, however, that I consider as suggesting a potential misallocation of talent. The first relates to the fact that the skills of the employed and the unemployed adults, according to the results of the OECD PX study, do not differ. The second relates to the extensive brain drain, which could be viewed as a response to a resource misallocation. And in fact, I think there is a third one too, the fact that people in Greece are not very satisfied from their lives. If you look at life satisfaction across countries, it seems to be related to this misallocation of talent or to the potential for misallocation of talent, uh, to be more precise. Now, turning to the distinction between talent, innate ability and education, I, I sort of come to the conclusion, but I could be wrong. It's in fact uh, more of a question that you use the word talent to avoid using the word education. Um, because that would create um, other issues of comparability. But I, I have to admit that I find talent and smartness very difficult to define. And I'm wondering whether the fact that we do not find some people talented or smart might be related to what we used to and what we expect. In other words, these are perhaps relative concepts that are very difficult to measure. Which brings me back to the policy measures to avoid misallocation of resources. Is preschool education not key to avoiding misallocation? Poorer households have difficulty in attending to their children, which then start off from a lower level than their peers from richer households would give it emphasis to preschool education, not ameliorate the allocation of resources and be better than giving a cow. On the COVID-related points from a cursory observation of the data, I note similar developments in Greece to the one that Professor Bandiera has mentioned. What I, um, that is, um, individuals in, so to speak, higher-ranked occupations exhibit lower downward mobility. But what I was thinking about is that we have to make sure we compare this to what happens normally. This, this lower downward mobility was always there for people in higher-ranked occupations. So how far has this mobility changed during COVID? And my and my second question to Professor Bandiera has to do with the work division. Uh, you mentioned this work division between um, spouses in a household. To what extent is this related to the type of job the individuals were doing before? If uh, the woman doesn't have the ability to telework, for example, this could be the fact that she's spending less time on work could be related to that. I think that's all I have to say. And many thanks for giving me the chance to take the floor on this subject. Thank you, Daphne. Very helpful indeed. Um, there's a number of 
uh, themes and a number of questions coming in. And I wonder if I could just begin and invite uh, Oriana to respond. And then if uh, Daphne or Aristides wish to add comments, that would be useful uh, as well. I guess underlying the entire discussion here is a theme about institutions and, and markets. Uh, there's a misallocation, there's a misallocation loop, as Oriana has um, very well uh, said. And I wonder um, what uh, systemic change uh, is more effective at getting us out of this uh, loop. In other words, um, we can thinking of different institutions, as Aristides has said, formal, informal institutions, uh, political economy, we talk about different models of capitalism, we could contrast an Italian model from a Swedish model, uh, etc. And uh, underlying this seems to be a sense that the uh, liberal markets, if Aristides uh, allows me to say this, uh, a liberal market is is failing. Uh, that is, that uh, the misallocation of, of talent, I understood Ariana to be saying that the most effective way out of it is for much greater state intervention uh, in the sense of much bigger fiscal transfers. How do you, how do you get out of the um, poverty uh, trap? Uh, you... Um, provide a cow, you provide some very significant income transfer uh, to the poor, that seems to be representative of quite a shift in the uh, assumptions about what the state should do in a liberal market. So I understood this to be um, a report saying that the liberal market is failing, the state should do more in the sense of uh, fiscal trans transfers, it's the only long-term uh, solution. Is that is that correct, Oriana, or is that, uh, um, you want to respond to that point? Okay. So I have many questions. Let me try and group them by theme. Thank you so much. These, these are all very good questions. So let me start with the question about the state. I start from the, from the bottom, uh, at least from the last question. Um, so it's not a matter of having an interventionistic state. Actually, this could be solved with a very simple idea, which was which is actually not my idea, but it's Tony Atkinson's, whose chair I have, just by taxing wealth and giving to every citizen a lump sum transfer when they turn 17, so that they can go to college, they can get the education they need, and that doesn't require targeting, doesn't require anything because it's a universal transfer. Everybody gets taxed, everybody gets the same. And that would be the level playing field because everybody would start their adult life with an equal amount of capital. Of course, people born into rich families will have more funds, but it will guarantee a minimum, which is enough for everybody to go to university. So that doesn't, that would actually have a much smaller, much slimmer state that just tax and redistributes without too many complicating and self-canceling transfers. Actually, it brings me to the point of is it physical capital, is it money, is it wealth, or is it education? 
uh, in two stages. The first is that giving people money to go to university, if they have gone to horrible schools up to that point, will make no difference. So it's important to start early. And preschool education is probably the best investment that we can make for two reasons. One, because without that, any further investment is going to be less effective. And two, actually three, uh, the two is that it's actually cheaper than anything else because preschool education is much cheaper than uh, university, much cheaper than secondary school and so on. And three, that is, uh, you know, it's two birds with one stone because if children have access to preschool education, mothers can work if they want to. So definitely, yes. Uh, coming uh, to Aristide's point, is it wealth or human capital? In the villages in Bangladesh, these were 36-year-old women were in a situation where they could either be domestic servants or tending cows. The only solution was to give them cows. In the vast majority of cases, I think the solution is human capital. And indeed, we are working with the same NGO to have... Um, on a large scale evaluation of a vocational training program where we um, where basically the NGO organizes this uh, vocational training so that people can escape from working the land like the father did before them and can get into jobs. And actually our baseline uh, survey suggests that the demand is very high, but people can't afford it. So a very simple reshuffling of the fee the timing of the fee being paid after they find the job as opposed to before when they have no money increases demand by like from 20 to 80% of the eligible population. So we are trying that. So definitely education, education, education. Uh, talent. Talent is not a vertical measure. So I use talent and I don't use ability because I don't mean to say that some people are better than others, although in the case of the greengrocer and the doctor in Sicily, that was clearly the case. There was a vertical differentiation there. But it's more of a matter of getting people to do the job that they can do well. So if you put me in an architecture department, I would be an utter disaster. There is probably something that I could do better than economics, but uh, it's not a matter of vertical differentiation. So somebody with the same level of education can be good at doing something and terrible at something else. So it's a matter of reshuffling people, matching horizontally as well as vertically. Um, captured politics and the feedback loop, because it's the people with money that makes the policies, that is, that is the fundamental problem. There's nothing more unsolvable than that. And I think that that's where we have to start. That is, we have to make the worst case scenario sufficiently non-disastrous that people who have the money to influence policies wouldn't mind their daughters or sons to end up in that worst case scenario. Until we reach that level, that is, until not going to Oxford doesn't mean that your life will be miserable, we will never get anywhere because the people who have the funds will always ensure that their kids go to the best primary school that then takes them to the best secondary school, that then get them into Oxford, that then gets them a lawyer job in the city or whatever. And that is all to avoid the fate of those who do not go to Oxford. So unless 
everybody's guaranteed a minimum level of welfare, which is acceptable by everybody, I don't think we'll ever solve that problem. Um, final question, institutions and norms in Sicily versus Milan. I'm always a bit worried when we start talking about people have different norms because we use it as an excuse to basically blame people for their own uh, problems. So there is a famous study where they take um, diplomats in New York City, where diplomats to the UN, posted to the UN, they don't pay parking tickets. And so they look and there is this wonderful correlation where the Norwegian behave like angels. They never park their cars in the wrong place. And the Italians and Greeks park in front of the fire hydrant, they park in the disabled spots and so, and so on because they don't get a ticket. And that's the, you know, that's the kind of uh, result that's celebrated from that paper. Now, if you look at the next table of that paper, it shows that within three months, the Norwegians start behaving like the Italians because they understand that they're not going to be punished. So there's nothing intrinsic, I think, about people being people of one nation or one region being intrinsically more corrupt than another nation or another region. It's all a matter of incentives. People respond to incentives. When the city of New York suspended the amnesty for the UN officers, everybody started behaving like the Norwegians. The Nigerians became Norwegians overnight. So incentives is what matters. And I think oh, the, the other question that you had was whether I have the data for the businesses in Europe like we have in Bangladesh. I don't have them, but just casually, if you look at the number of uh, small businesses that are closing and the revenue of Amazon, I, I think we know where we're going. I wonder, colleagues, if you'd let me uh, go straight to the Q&A because there are lots of questions coming in. We do have uh, a nice uh, large audience. Um, Helena Robert uh, from the LSE Gender Department asks, I was wondering to what extent is it feasible to apply taxation policies or a universal basic income policy in the context of COVID recovery and the OECD recommending countries like Spain and Italy not to increase their taxes in the coming period. These are also countries which, uh, together with Greece, have very high rates of brain drain. How does increasing taxes to those in the country contribute to improving the future uh, for children of those who might be working in other countries as a result of this misallocation of talent. Ariana? It depends who you tax and what you tax, right? So taxes on wealth don't have any of this counterindication. Of course, if you have a tax on income, um, that pushes people away, especially if the high tax rate starts at a very low level of income. So it depends on the structure of the tax. So a state tax doesn't have these problems, for instance. Okay. And it's one of the probably more uh, unequal taxes that we don't have. And uh, let me now go more internationally. Um, Dr. Sajid Ahmed from Islamabad in Pakistan 
My question is regarding the difference between blue-collar workers and the white-collar workers and how to eliminate this difference in third-world countries when these hierarchies when these hierarchies matter most and are so deeply embedded what can be done so i'm not sure we can eliminate the difference in the sense that that derives from the production there are tasks for which you need a university degree and tasks for which you don't uh, the issue is the allocation of people to those jobs so getting the right person to do the white collar job and getting the right person to do the blue collar job i don't think we can all be university professors because we need food and roads and doctors thank you and razia dosa civil servant also from pakistan uh, the covid pandemic has given birth to a new form of inequality and that is the digital divide existing in societies all over the world especially though in developing countries what do you think can be done to reduce this inequality doesn't this further add to the already existing inequality and misallocation of talents actually that's uh, you know you can look at the positive side of it this had this lecture been in athens i think not so many people would have been able to see it. So it's true that uh, it introduces a new form of inequality because not everybody has access, but at the same time, it gives us the opportunity to reach out to parts of the world where by doing things physically, we would have never gone. Um, I think this is an easy one to fix because if there is one thing that has become cheaper with time is technology. And uh, technology can be easily distributed, so cheaper than cows, a lot cheaper. Thank you, um, Dimitris Suidias. How can inequality be removed from capitalist society? Is it possible to reduce inequality in a span of time, or is it impossible to remove from society? Uh, well, I, here, I completely agree with Aristides. The we don't want to eliminate inequality in outcomes because that's intrinsically what the capitalistic system works on we need to people who work harder to be paid more otherwise there's no incentive to do so we want to eliminate inequality in opportunities that's what's wrong we want to have rules of the games that are fair and whatever outcome comes out will be fair at least according within the system but here we're not the inequality that we're talking about is not intrinsic to the capitalistic system thank you uh, bernard casey um can you say more about the role of inheritance and is there not an advantage of taxing inheritance strongly to promote efficiency an example businesses should not be passed on to children that would be a big step forward because children do not inherit the talent meaning the type of skills that their father had we would never choose a football team by taking the sons of the football player of a team that won the world cup 15 years ago so there's no reason why we should put at the helm of the firms the sons of the person who founded the firm 
And, you know, the inefficiency of tax derived from the fact that people take actions to avoid that tax. As far as I know, it's impossible not to die. So taxing a state is probably the most efficient and equitable tax that there is. But it comes back to the point that I made before, that people are very reluctant because they fear that their children would suffer enormously unless they left with a big inheritance. So that's where the state comes in. We have to make sure that everybody has a decent shot so that we don't need to leave our kids, our firms. Next question. It seems to me that while the 50%, 10% makes sense as a measure within sectors, I'm not sure what it captures at the country level. Would we really want the manager at McDonald's to be smarter than the operative at a BMW car factory? As sectoral compositions differ across countries, it may well be that the observed differences in the ratio simply reflect that some countries have more McDonald's and fewer high-tech manufacturing companies or services. Are the cross-country patterns similar when the figures are reproduced for selected sectors? So that was a motivating figure that didn't go into this level of detail. Uh, But I don't think that can explain it because more sophisticated sectors tend to be in countries where GDP is higher. And those are precisely the country where that ratio is lower. So if anything, it will go the other way. Thank you. And I wonder whether we could, uh, let me invite uh, any of you to come in uh, on this uh, question. There is a correlation between corruption, inequality, and misallocation at the state or governmental level in the case of low-income countries such as Bangladesh. How can we eradicate a problem as such, such as this? Whatever the solution may be, for example, greater education and taxation, How can it be assured that they will succeed or to what extent they will succeed if the problem of corruption exists? Uh, You know, coming from a developing country myself, I think corruption is a bit, I hate to say this, but it's an excuse. It's an excuse that people from better off countries put to explain the underdevelopment of poorer countries. Because corruption, I don't think it's a cause. I think corruption is a consequence of the system. When the system does not work, you do side payments to smooth the wheels. So I think if you fix everything else, you will see that corruption will disappear. Trying to tackle corruption without tackling the causes of corruption will not have any effect. Wouldn't there be a sequential problem or... uh... A, a time problem here that we could agree that um, if you overcome uh, corruption in the long term, uh, resources can be allocated more efficiently, but we are where we are. I think corruption will disappear if the system works well, if there are enough resources. Yes, but how do we get to the point where the system, how long does it take to get to the point where the system works well? <laughs> and, in, and, in the mean, and in the meantime, don't you lose support for the reallocation that you're advocating because being, there's a sense that it's been wasted? I'm being provocative here, but 
I've had so much of this, uh, you know, corruption as the solution to everything. And in particular, the measures that are taken to cartel corruption in many cases have been shown to be way costlier than the corruption itself. So we have work in Pakistan, supposed to be one of the most corrupt countries in the world, where bureaucrats have their hands super tied. They have to fill in an enormous amount of paperwork to make sure that no public money gets you know, misallocated in a bribe. And when we simplify in an experiment, when we simplify these requirements, the, the prices paid by public bodies for the goods that they buy fall dramatically. The reason for that being is that whenever you have measures that need to curtail corruption, you need people to enforce them. And there is no guarantee that the enforcers are less corrupt than the people who they are supposed to enforce. And actually, typically, because the enforcer is one and the agents are many, the enforcer has more monopoly power. So by making these excessive rules to curtail corruption, you're basically giving the power to somebody else to be more corrupt. I wonder if I could bring in Archivis. Uh, you've written about uh, Greece having a social trap and the problem of uh, corruption. Um, and, and an institutional trap. Yes. Uh, a basic proposition, inequality is high in Greece. Uh, the, the most effective solution for it is to have um, really quite significant fiscal transfers to shift uh, prospects on a permanent long-term basis. Um, would you, uh, would you uh, be optimistic that Greece has the institutions to deliver that? Uh, no. <laughs> it, it is not a matter. I agree with Oriana that, uh, for example, uh, corruption is a, is a symptom. Of course, it is a symptom. Sometimes corruption is a, um, a cost-saving device. Uh, it, uh, it, it eliminates friction uh, created by rigid institutions or by institutions that are under-enforced. But sometimes uh, corruption has to do with the, the very... Um, uh, the, the very essence of, uh, of, of, of fairness, like, uh, for example, corruption that uh, undermines uh, meritocracy and, uh, and, uh, and it creates misallocation of, um, of resources. Uh, for me, the important, I mean, the, the recipe that, that, that for me is, um, is now kind of a, of a very easy, reasonable and, um, uh, apparent recipe for me is the one that uh, it was emphasized by Mancure also some years ago uh, when he said, with the experience of, um, of transition countries in uh, Eastern Europe, that uh, the recipe for, uh, for almost everything is uh, uh, open markets, open competitive markets. Uh, I'm not using the word free markets because I, I, I think that methodologically is problematic or liberal markets, as, as, you, <laughs> um, as, as you did, uh, but open competitive markets with targeted social transfers. And for me, uh, transfers to investment are very important. Um, societies with more open markets, for example, the quarter of, of the more open economic societies are the ones, and correct me if I'm wrong, are the ones with less economic inequality than the rest uh, of the societies. 
I, I have also a remark uh, about something that um, the artist. Yeah. Okay, just before yeah. you no. onto that, um, I wonder whether uh, Sweden would qualify in what you've just uh, yes. said. The yeah. most o the most open market has uh, better equality, um, but it, uh, but essentially the question becomes uh, one that um, why isn't, uh, for example, a neoliberal prospectus popular in Greece, even if it was tied to the prospects of very significant welfare transfers. It wouldn't fly, would it? Yeah, yeah, for political, cultural reasons. Um, uh, the, 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 the Scandinavian model, open markets, uh, very strong institutional framework. This is the Mancuro Olson recipe, open markets, a very strong, uh, a, a rather not strong, an efficient framework for economic development and targeted social transfers based on investment on education are, for me, the best recipe for a European kind of society. Mm. And if we compare societies like Canada and the United States, we're going to observe that Canada now has a more open economy uh, than the United States, that uh, Denmark has one of the more eco open economies in the world uh, with very uh, flexible, for example, labor regulations without, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, without uh, minimum wage uh, laws. And uh, at the same time, a very generous, but also very effective social welfare state. Mm. And the effectiveness, okay. the, the effectiveness is very important, it's essential here. Okay. Uh, Daphne, would you like to come back on any of the points that have been made? Yeah, I would like to ask Oriana if she has examples of developing countries where mm. some change has taken place and we can see an improvement uh, over time along the lines of what you are uh, suggesting. Suggest. South Korea. South Korea is now one of the most advanced economies. You go to Seoul, it's better than Tokyo. I mean, it's more impressive. And uh, 20 years ago, it was very, very poor. How did they do it? Massive state investments in basic services which are needed by the private sector to operate, electricity, transport. So nowadays it will be investments in broadband, connectivity. So everything that the markets cannot provide, you give the foundations, the business comes. So this brings me, if I if I may do this as exchange. Uh, so this brings you perhaps to a point that um, giving your individual households and in your experiment the cows would not be as efficient as building a water station. Or oh, I can't think of an of some infrastructure that is missing a road in that country. That would be more beneficial than giving each individual household something. But I think you have to trade off the welfare of people now because it takes a while, you know, if you build an electricity grid and a good broadband system, the country will develop and probably the son of the son of those people will do better. But in the meantime, I think you do need to sustain the welfare of these people and you can choose whether to pay piecemeal transfers every year to make sure that they don't starve or to give them a one-off to make sure that 
they get off on their own feet. What that paper showed is that the latter is a better idea. So the, the, the choice there is not between giving people cows or building broadband connectivity. The choice is between giving people piecemeal transfers every year when they're about to die or give them one shot big transfer. That was the choice that we were looking at in that paper. Thank you. I think this may have to be the last question, but if, in fact, it comes from South, South Korea. Of course it does, because it's an LSE webinar. Um, I'm going to pronounce the, the, the name incorrectly, forgive me. Yong No, an LSE student joining from South Korea. A question for, Dr., for Professor Bandera. What are the potential challenges of providing a huge one-off transfer to poor communities as opposed to traditional small cash transfer programs? And how is this idea going to be perceived by donors and implementing organizations? Politically, can it fly? So politically, donors should be way interested in this because the returns are a lot higher. Actually, this will be also profitable on a long-term loan. If you give an asset, either human capital or cows, you can mortgage the asset and uh, you know, have a long-term repayment. These, many of these women who escaped the poverty trap could now repay a cow without a problem. So it's a matter of having the long-term view. Uh, politically in the country, it's more difficult because in, for the same amount of money, given that one person is one vote, you can reach many more people by giving a little bit to many rather than a lot to a few. So I think that is the political difficulty there. Okay, well, um, apologies. I think we have to draw matters to a conclusion, but can I uh, thank uh, very much indeed, Oriana, for giving a very stimulating presentation. Uh, which indeed has covered many different aspects. And can I thank Daphne and Aristides for their comments and contributions uh, as well. Uh, can I mention our next event? That is the next event for the Hellenic Observatory. Uh, and it's a book launch. And uh, in fact, this is slightly embarrassing to mention because it's a book launch that I have co-edited with Dimitris Sotiropoulos from the University of Athens. Uh, don't join because we're going to be there. Join us because our discussants will be Professor Bridget Lafan, Director and Professor of the Robert Schumann Centre at the European University Institute in Florence. Uh, Professor Calypso Nicolides, uh, Prof Professorial Chair in Transnational Governance at the European University Institute in Florence. And George Zembelis, the Anatole Rapoport Collegiate Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. That will be on the 25th of May at um, uh, 1800 hours Greek time, 1600 hours uh, UK time. And uh, we look forward to you uh, joining us uh, for that. A reminder, you can watch uh, this video and all of our videos on the Hellenic Observatory website at the London School of Economics and also on the Hellenic Observatory YouTube channel as well. Finally, my thanks again to um, the National Bank of Greece for uh, supporting this series of lectures. I think we've had a very stimulating discussion uh, today. Uh, my thanks to all of you for joining and for the many questions which we had. Wherever you are, thank you for joining. Goodbye.